0: Good evening, my name is Arne Westard. I'm one of the co-directors of LSE Ideas with my good friend and colleague, Professor Michael Cox, who is also here tonight. Uh, And it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you to tonight's lectures, uh, Arguments with Gandhi. Now, it's a special pleasure to welcome uh, Ramachandra Guha, who is the fifth Philippe Romand Chairholder here at LSE Ideas. As you will all know, I'm sure, uh, IDEAS is a multidisciplinary center for the study of diplomacy and international affairs. Uh, it is one that we've been running now at for the last six years at LSE. And we've been very lucky at the core of the center to have had five incredibly good Philippe Roman professors, starting with Paul Kennedy, then Professor Chen Jian, then Jill Kepel, Dealt with the Middle East and North Africa. Many of you will remember Jill, and then last year Professor Neil Ferguson. And this year, it is a particular pleasure for us to host the very well-known scholar uh, Ramachandra Guha. It's also a pleasure for me to talk a little bit about the background to this chair. As you will know, it was made possible by a gift from Emmanuel Roman in. Uh, memory of his late father, Philippe Roman. Um, Manny has been more than a donor for this project. He's also been a very active collaborator to it. Uh, his wide ranging interests in history and, and international affairs has really been part of what has been driving this chair forward. And it, it is really wonderful when you work in academia and you have people who, from the outside who come in to support academic work, who do it out of passion, not just because they happen to think that it's a well-placed donation or a well-placed gift. And many of is those is one of those who really have a passion for international history, and we're very grateful to him for that. The Philippe Romanche means a lot to LSE. It means impulses from leading thinkers in international history from various parts of the world. It means that they can come here and interact with staff and with students at LSE. Uh, It means that they become part of the bustling environment that is LSE, and it is something that we enjoy. And so far, I hope that includes RAM as well, the uh, Philippe Roman professors have enjoyed as well. I'm very grateful to uh, Howard Davis, who was the director of LSE when this uh, gift was first set up. Uh, Howard played a very significant role in arranging this and making sure that we have the current arrangements for the Philippe Romand chair. And of course to Judith Rees and and her team who are running the school at the moment. Now, as always, a lot of thinking went into selecting this year's uh, Philippe Romand chair. Um, uh, Mick and I have been thinking about it a long time we were discussing it with others consulting widely within the school but I must say that when we had decided on the rough area that we wanted to move towards um, the selection itself was not particularly difficult Uh, when we decided that we wanted to do something on Indian history and international affairs wherever we turned we more or less got the same advice get Guha. And that is indeed what we did. Now, Ramachandra Guha is one of the few people that I know uh, who really deserve the much abused title of a leading public intellectual. He is a key participant in debates about history, about the present, and about the future in India, and about India abroad. His interests are very wide-ranging, <clears throat> Indian history, ecological history, uh, history of environmentalism. Uh, He's also uh, developed a very fruitful sideline in the history of cricket. and no doubt very pleased with the most recent results in that respect. He's published very widely. Um, I'll just mention a few of the books that have had a particular impact in the fields that they cover. Uh, His first book, I think it was your first book, Ram, uh, called The Unquiet Woods, Ecological Change and Peasant Resistance in the Himalaya, published in nineteen eighty-nine. It's a real pathbreaker for linking international history concerns with un- environmental concerns, very much with an anthropological approach. He has also published This Fissured Land, An Ecologic History of India, in nineteen ninety-two, environmentalism, a global history in two thousand, and then perhaps his most well-known book, India After Gandhi. The History of the World's Largest Democracy, that came out in 2007. And his most recent book is called The Makers of Modern India, which was published last year and spent several uh, weeks on the bestseller list in India. It is quite a remarkable book, and I would recommend it very strongly to those of you who have an interest in the history of India and South Asia, because it tries to explain the background And the direction taken by some of the key thinkers on political and social affairs in India over the past 150 years. It is wonderful to have you on board for the Philippe Roman Chair Ram. And to the audience, please join me in welcoming Ramachandra Guha, our new Philippe Roman Professor, to the LSE.
1: Thank you, Ani. Thank you all for coming here. It's a great privilege and (coughs) honour to stand before you as uh, the Philippe Romain Professor. Uh, I was overwhelmed when (coughs) Heresy Ideas asked me whether I would be interested for a variety of reasons. in a country like mine which has many attributes uh, and some rather unpleasant characteristics, it's very rare to be asked uh, or invited for a job when you know nobody at all in in the institution that is asking you. (laughs) At least in that department. So naturally I was touched and flattered. The LSE has meant a great deal to me to my intellectual evolution uh, to the evolution of my country, it used to be said that, in every Indian cabinet meeting, there was an empty chair reserved for the ghost, ghost of professor harald uh... that 's no longer the case. We moved on uh, uh, London is my second favorite city in the world, and the first is not new york by the way it 's mumbai and uh, Uh, So that too was (coughs) uh, deeply uh, flattering. So I'm absolutely delighted to be here today to give the first of uh, four lectures I'll be giving, public lectures I'll be giving, as the Philippe Roma Professor. So I'm speaking on Gandhi, and uh, my talk is called Arguments with Gandhi. Uh, But I thought (coughs) I'd begin with Gandhi's connections to my second favorite city, which may actually even have been close to Gandhi's favorites. Gandhi didn't like cities generally. He loved the village, he perhaps romanticized the village, but there was a special place in his heart for London. Uh, He came here as a young student, there are students here in this room, and it struck me only yesterday that actually the experience that defined Gandhi's years in London, uh, arguably an experience that decisively shaped his life, happened just a couple of blocks away from the LSE. uh, On a street called High Holborn. In High Holborn, Gandhi comes to uh, uh, London in the winter of 1888-1889 when uh, the plumbing and the heating was even more primitive than it is now. (laughs) And he came from a warm and sunny part of India, the Kathiawar coast, he comes to India, comes to London, leaving behind his wife and his infant child. And he's lonely and he's finding the law books rather hard and difficult and dreary. Uh, He goes, uh, he has to attend as part of his law trading, a series of dinners at his inn and all you can get in those uh, dinners is joints of beef and mutton, and he was a vegetarian. And while he was feeling lonely and cold and gloomy, he walked down High Holborn and he saw a vegetarian restaurant. (laughs) And he walked into it. And in that restaurant were being sold copies of a tract by a reformer called Henry Salt entitled A Plea for Vegetarianism. Gandhi bought the tract. He doesn't say what the meal was like. I suspect not very good. Uh, but he bought the tract, was enchanted by the fact that in London they were vegetarians because Gandhi grew up in a part of India which is vegetarian. His home was vegetarian. The caste he belonged to, Maud baniyas are vegetarian. He contacted the Vegetarian Society, which had been founded by Henry Salt, became a member, uh, made his first English friends, learned the connections between Uh, a vegetarian diet and ethics, and incidentally published his first essays. There are 90 volumes of Gandhi's collected works. And the first published writings appeared in the Journal of the Vegetarian Society of London. Uh, And since Gandhi was a lifelong writer and editor, one should be grateful to the restaurant in High Holborn which gave him his first break. So Gandhi comes to London, Um, in 1888, stays till 1890, then goes to South Africa, uh, where he practices as a lawyer, becomes an activist for the rights of (coughs) uh, the Indian community there, and as an activist uh, on behalf of the Indian diaspora, in the Transvaal and the Natal, visits London again in 1906 and 1909, where also his time in London has some transformative impacts on him, which I'm going to skip over, and come to 1930, which is his last, 31, which is his last visit to London after the Salt March, a march that had shaken a mighty empire and had uh, brought them to negotiate with this half-naked Fakir, who then takes the ship uh, across the oceans and comes to Southampton. And when he lands and comes off the ship, a journalist asks him, asks this enemy and foe of the British Empire, asks him, what do you think of Western civilization? And Gandhi answers, I think it would be a good idea. (laughs) Uh, But that's one uh, superbly witty remark that he made on that trip, which is quite well known, but there's another which I'd like to remember, which happened after he goes to Buckingham Palace, dressed in a loincloth and just a rather thin shawl covering him in the depth of winter, it was the London winter again and he actually reconnects with Henry Salt on this visit, which is a nice thing, but he goes to Buckingham Palace and as he comes out after his meeting with the King George VI, journal, another journalist asks him, Mr. Gandhi, didn't you feel cold? And he says, the king had enough on for both of us.
0: <laughs>
1: now, sometime in between his uh, remark to the journalist of the ship, and his meeting with the king, where in another version, Gandhi is supposed to have said, the king, the king was wearing plus fours, I was wearing minus fours. But in some time in between the ship and the king, meeting with the king, Gandhi comes, and this is a rather obscure fact in Gandhi's life, but utterly relevant to uh, us today, and particularly to the great honor you've done me, Professor Vestard and Professor Cox, and others here in inviting me. Gandhi addresses the London School of Economics. I don't know whether the old theatre existed then, I don't know where he spoke, but it was almost exactly 80 years ago. On the 30th of November 19... uh, I beg your pardon, on the 10th of November 1931, almost exactly 80 years ago, (coughs) Gandhi speaks to the students of the London School of Economics. According to a press report, and I quote, The theater of the LSE did not suffice to accommodate the members of the school students' union who assembled to hear Mahatma Gandhi. The audience consisted mostly of English students and was perhaps the largest English audience Mahatma Gandhi had addressed in England, which is a great tribute, I would say, not just to Gandhi, but to the London School of Economics. Uh, The diary of Gandhi's secretary, Mahadev Desai, says about this speech, he says afterwards a Negro student, which in those days was the accepted term for African-American, an African-American student, perhaps an African student, we don't know. Anyway, uh, a black student asked Gandhi you love Englishmen, and yet you dislike the British government. You love Englishmen, and yet you dislike the British government. But British people make up the British government. How can you do this? And Gandhi answered, I have learned from domestic law that if I have humanity in me, I should love the Brit- Britisher which God has made. And yet I detest his method and I'm doing my best to destroy his method. This was characteristic of Gandhi. He detested British imperialism, but he did not have an iota of dislike for any single living Englishman or Englishwoman. And I submit to you that this extraordinary distinction that Gandhi made between imperialism as an evil system and the British as, if you will, a race capable of redemption, came from his early encounters with the vegetarians of London, not far from the London School of Economics. (laughs) All right, now, after this rather extended and complicated and lengthy prologue, let me come uh, (coughs) to the subject of my talk, Arguments with Gandhi. I have long believed that India is the most interesting country in the world, period. And that's the objective remark of a historian, uh, not uh, the partisan claim of a citizen. As a citizen, I might indeed want to live in Norway, uh, Arne, which is safer, more pleasurable, or at least in the summers I'd live in Norway. In the winters I may go somewhere else. But India is the most interesting country in the world, and Gandhi was unquestionably the most interesting and the most influential Indian. Gandhi, Gandhi's life, his legacy, his thought, his words, his actions provide a window (coughs) into some of the great debates of modern India. Think of debates on the caste system, that complex, oppressive, and sometimes brutal system of hierarchy and discrimination. Think of British colonialism and its impact on India. Think of relations between Hindus and Muslims sometimes rivalrous, sometimes harmonious. Think of the emancipation of women. Think of economic development and its manifold implications. And in all these subjects you will find Gandhi has something to say, something original to say. Not that he was always right, but he was always provocative. But of course, Gandhi was not merely an Indian figure. His work, his life, his legacy, his actions open up all kinds of questions relevant to different countries, different contexts, not just to 20th century India. In 1998, (coughs) Time magazine, always uh, a respectable barometer of the conventional wisdom in the United States, uh, decided to choose its person of the millennium. I beg your pardon, its person of the century. So it said it will choose. who was the most influential person who lived between 1900 and 2000. And they first thought they'd have an online poll. Now these were early days of online polls and the Indians were first on their terminals. (laughs) So all the votes were cast by Indians and not many of them may have been for Mahatma Gandhi. A great many were for the cricketer Sachin Tendulkar. (laughs) And a great many were for the extraordinary uh, Bombay actor Amitabh Bachchan. (laughs) neither of whom the editors of Time had heard of. So they abolished the online poll and consulted a committee of experts, which I suppose consisted of suited and booted professors, all male, all white, etc, etc, from Ivy League universities. And this in-house jury of uh, Time magazine chose Albert Einstein as their person of the millennium. Now. Gandhi was ranked number two, joined two with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, I don't know what Roosevelt would have thought of this ranking, or indeed Winston Churchill and Charles de Gaulle and others who were way below, but Einstein would have been deeply, deeply embarrassed. Einstein venerated Gandhi. In 1930-31, about the time that Gandhi spoke at the London School of Economics, Einstein was a professor of physics in Berlin, and in his study, They hung three portraits, a portrait of the physicist Max Planck, a portrait of the physicist Faraday, Michael Faraday, and a portrait of the then relatively obscure Indian saint politician Mohandas K. Gandhi. As you know, (coughs) Einstein wasn't allowed to stay in Berlin very long. He had to flee the Nazi regime and he migrated to the United States and he became a professor at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton. And in the early 1950s, there was only one portrait in Einstein's study. And a friend of Einstein's, who had been to his earlier study in Berlin, asked (coughs) the great man what happened to the other pictures in his studio. And Einstein said, well, between 1930 and 1950, the laws of physics gave us the atom bomb. Whereas Gandhi's reputation has stayed intact, intact, in fact, has been enhanced. So Einstein venerated Gandhi. This is what Einstein says about Gandhi in the year 1939. I quote, A leader of his people, unsupported by any outward authority. A politician whose success rests not upon craft, nor the mastery of technical devices. But whose success rests simply on the convincing power of his personality, a victorious fighter who has always scorned the use of force, a man of wisdom and humility, armed with resolve and inflexible consistency, who, who has devoted his strength, who has devoted his strength to the uplifting of his people and the betterment of their lot, a man who has confronted the brutality of Europe with the dignity of the simple human being and at all times risen superior generations to come it may be says Einstein generations to come it may be will scarce believe that such a one as this even in flesh and blood walked upon this earth. Now the beauty of studying Gandhi is that for every evocative quote such as this in praise or evocation of him there is an equally eloquent and uh, exquisitely worded remark denigrating Gandhi. Now I've quoted Einstein on Gandhi. Let me quote what Einstein's contemporary, Einstein's deservedly forgotten contemporary, the former Viceroy of India, Lord Willingdon, said about Gandhi in 1933. He had to deal with Gandhi on a daily basis as as uh, as a kind of, you know, uh, leading rebel of the time and this is Willingdon writing, this is Willingdon writing to his sister and uh, uh, you know it's, it's a curious fact about the English that they often confide most intimately to their sisters. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's certainly true of Willingdon because if you read his letters you'll you'll get lots you won't get in his letters to his wife, his, his daughter, his superiors and or the king and or his or the archbishop and so on. Anyway here is <coughs> Lord Willingdon writing to his sister Florence Book, Brooks in 1933. I quote It's a beautiful world if it wasn't for Gandhi. It's a beautiful world if it wasn't for Gandhi, who is really a perfect nuisance. At the bottom of every move he makes, which he always says is inspired by God, one discovers the political maneuver. I see the American press is saying, what a wonderful man he is. But the fact is, that we live in the midst of very unpractical, mystical, and superstitious folk who look upon Gandhi as something holy, whereas I look upon him as the biggest humbug alive. <laughs> now, historians thrive on controversy. And there was and is no more controversial figure than Gandhi. What makes Gandhi so interesting, so intriguing, so controversial? so utterly arguable to begin with Gandhi had as many as four professions Gandhi was a freedom fighter who led his people in a popular movement against imperial rule. Gandhi was at the same time a social reformer who sought to mobilize his people to correct and overcome the fault lines within particularly the fault lines of caste and gender Gandhi was a religious pluralist who sought, who uh, who really thought very deeply about questions of faith. Again, to go back to his early years in London, you know, he attended all the Christian churches possible. You know, he went to the Methodists, uh, the Baptists, uh, the Unitarians, the Theosophists. Then later on, of course, he studies uh, Islam, Christi- uh, you know, uh, Zoroastrianism, uh, Judaism, and so on. So he was a religious pluralist, deeply interested in forging relations of um, amity. And trust and cooperation between different religious communities and finally he was a precocious environmentalist he was someone who thought deeply about patterns of economic development and how they should be headed so he had four professions that of freedom fighter social reformer religious pluralist and environmentalist what is even more striking is that in each of these four professions he forged novel techniques so as a freedom fighter he forged the technique of non-violent protest or satyagraha collective action uh, against discriminatory laws against oppressive governments so gandhi didn't simply believe in uh, you know petitioning or writing letters or going to court he believed in collecting mass action but non-violently as a social reformer uh, he also invented strikingly original techniques if you think of his critique of the caste system uh, which is a very important part of his work you know those of you who are Indian will know the horrors of the caste system uh, those of you uh, who are not Indian I uh, mean, in summary say the, the caste system is like slavery only worse uh, because it minutely I mean it shows uh, it minutely discriminates against people uh, you know it, it orders society in five categories according to what you can wear, what you can eat, what profession you can follow, whom you can mix with, and it fixes people in these ranks of perpetuity. And it's really, the complexity of the caste system, uh, you know, goes far beyond, uh, uh, and the the pure wickedness and the diabolical nature of the philosophers who uh, invented the caste system goes well beyond ideologues of empire and and, and racism. You know, uh, the sense that, uh, uh, you know, if you testify in court in court how much is the testimony of a low low caste worth uh, versus vis-a-vis the testimony of a middle caste and a high caste and so on and it's really very it's, it's a very degrading social institution but yet uh, for all its horrors it was a social institution that was practiced uh, in india for thousands of years that regulated at every step and for every minute the existence of several hundred million indians and gandhi challenged it and challenged it through innovative methods, for example, one of his uh, <coughs> uh, radical ideas was uh, 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 to make high caste do manual labor. You know, it's uh, uh, one of the uh, the distinction between high caste and low caste has to do with partly with your, the professions you practice. And those who are at the top of the caste hierarchy are not supposed to soil their hands. And Gandhi made high caste people do manual labor. Another very interesting innovation was the temple entry movement that he launched. The lowest castes, or Dalits, the so-called untouchables, were traditionally and by custom excluded from worshipping in temples because it was felt that their presence would defile the deity. So Gandhi organized temple entry movements in which high caste and low caste went together. High caste reformers, radical high caste and low caste went together. So the first transgression of the caste boundaries was high caste and low caste actually moving together, which was not uh, manda- mandated under law and custom. The second breaching was to enter the temple, and in a sense uh, uh, this was a precedent for the what is now uh, very celebrated in, in the US. I mean, this is the 50th anniversary of the so-called freedom rights, where white liberals and white radicals joint civil rights activists in the American South in traveling together in buses which was supposed to be segregated. Uh, Likewise, if you think of Gandhi's work as a religious pluralist, he forged new ideas, new methods. One innovation of his was the open-air prayer meeting. You know, I've been uh, trying to uh, uh, get some documentary evidence for this, but I'm quite certain that in adult life Uh, Let me preface this. Gandhi always said that he was a Hindu. But I'm quite certain that in adult life, Gandhi never actually entered a temple. Because the temples, partly because temples uh, practiced discrimination and untouchables were kept out. And partly because he felt that to practice your faith, you did not need walls uh, and, and a kind of closed space. I mean, the open sky was enough. And he had these open-air prayer meetings where texts of different faiths were read and hymns also of different traditions were sung. So you may have a Christian hymn, a Hindu bhajan, and so on and so forth. Also, uh, as a religious pluralist, Gandhi uh, (coughs) made marches for communal harmony. There were three great marches that Gandhi conducted in his life. The first and most famous was the Salt March which was to break the law granting the government a monopoly over salt in 1930. And That's the most famous and that's much memorialized. The second and almost as famous march that Gandhi made was in the cause of religious harmony when as an old man in his seventies he trekked across the riot torn villages of eastern Bengal seeking to bring about peace between Writing groups of Hindus and Muslims. The third march I'll come to in a little while. So uh, what is striking about Gandhi is that he had four professions. And in each of these four professions, he created and innovated new methods and new techniques. And finally, what is striking is that Gandhi's ideas were sharply contested in each sphere. <coughs> Satyagraha for example the idea of non-violent protest was opposed from the left and from the right. Liberals thought that Gandhi was bringing about a grammar of anarchy. You know, when Gandhi arrives on the scene when he returns from South Africa in 1915, there was already a well-established tradition of petitioning British authorities for greater rights. The Indian National Congress had been set up in 1885 and had been arguing for greater representation in offices, in law courts for Indians. uh, Some limited uh, elections on a highly restricted franchise had been granted as a result of these petitions, and the Liberals felt that this process of incremental change was being derailed by non-violence, by collective street mobilization. At the same time, non-violent civil disobedience, or uh, Satyagraha, truth force, the name Gandhi gave it, was opposed equally stridently from the left by the Marxists, who thought that non-violence was a canny technique to wean the masses away from the revolutionary path. And there's a famous attack on Gandhi written by a a British Marxist of Indian origin, actually half-Indian and half-Swedish origin called Rajni Pamdat, which calls Gandhi a Jonah of the bourgeoisie, and accuses him of deliberately inventing non-violence so that the Indians would not follow the Russians in having an armed, violent revolution. Uh, Gandhi's religious philosophy <coughs> was unique and original, and in my view, utterly relevant to our times. You know, we live in a time today where <coughs> on the one hand, you have aggressive atheists, uh, and you also have aggressive fundamentalists. That's the religious debate today. You know, it's between some crazy mullah and uh, some equally uh, one-sided, uh, you know, I won't take names but you know whom I mean, <laughs> professors in universities that are not the London School of Economics, shall we say, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, who have no understanding of the nuances and complexities of faith and why people take to religion. Now, Gandhi actually came of age at a similar time. Gandhi was born 10 years after the publication of The Origins of Species. You know, he lives in Europe in the 1890s, a period described by Thomas Hardy as witnessing God's funeral, a time of doubt doubt and skepticism and rising atheism among the intellectuals and the middle class. At the late 19th century is also a time of aggressive proselytizing by Christian and Islamic missionaries across uh, Europe, Asia and Africa and Gandhi finds a very uh, uh, innovative and in my view compelling way out of this dilemma. Gandhi says you accept, you accept the faith you are born into but seek to improve it and you seek to improve it by carrying on conversations with people of other faiths Gandhi's closest friend was that British Anglican priest called Charles Freer Andrews and it's a testament to the intimacy of this friendship that the only person in adulthood who addressed Gandhi by his first name was C F Andrews if you admired Gandhi as many uh, Indians did you called him gandhiji or bapu which means father if you disliked gandhi as also many Indians did you called him called him mr gandhi or mk gandhi you would you The honorific Bapu or Mahatma. But Mohan was what C.F. Andrews called him and Gandhi cultivated similar friendships with Jewish thinkers, Islamic thinkers, uh, Parsi thinkers because he thought you know in the mirror of somebody else's faith you can recognize the deficiencies of your own faith. You can see for example why the caste system needs to be abolished. By talking uh, to a Hindu about ahimsa or non-violence a Christian can better appreciate the Pacific traditions in his own uh, in his own faith and so on. So Gandhi had a very in my view very uh, different and unique and probably uh, 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 contemporary understanding of interfaith dialogue but of course he was bitterly opposed. He was opposed by those who believed in the ins, in the superiority of their own faith by Muslim fundamentalists and by Hindu fundamentalists and he was opposed by secularists and atheists who thought that uh, you know, uh, why believe in a god at all? Gandhi's uh, precocious environmental critique of the arrogance of modern science was, of course, complete anathema to modernizers and Marxists. And Gandhi's views on untouchability, which is what I'm going to speak on for a little while, uh, were also opposed. They were opposed by right wing Hindus who thought that a man with no real knowledge of the Sanskrit scriptures, a man who was not born in a princely caste, uh, in a priestly caste, who was not by training a priest, had no business challenging the orthodoxy of the scriptures. At the same time, Gandhi's incremental evolutionary approach to the abolition of untouchability was uh, bitterly criticized by radical low caste reformers, such as the great constitutional lawyer, B. R. Ambedkar, incidentally a graduate of the London School of Economics. Now, to understand how Gandhi's social, political, moral uh, philosophy was so contested, so controversial, uh, I think we have to spend a little time, very briefly, on uh, the third great march that Gandhi made the march that is completely forgotten and hardly written about. This took place (coughs) between September 1933 and March 1934. Gandhi comes to England in 1931, uh, goes back and is almost immediately jailed by Lord Willingdon and spends the better part of two years in jail, is released in August of 1933, and immediately starts a countrywide march against untouchability. Because while he is in jail, he is convinced ever more than before about the absolutely crucial importance of ending discrimination against the lowest caste. Because how could India claim political freedom from the British when it treats one-fifth of its own population in such an abominable way? So it starts a march against untouchability. And Lord Willingdon is completely confused (laughs) and he is sure, because Gandhi is a humbug as we've we've seen, Lord Willingdon is sure that Gandhi is simply using this as an excuse and somewhere in some remote village in some part of India, he will announce a new march to the sea or start some new campaign of civil disobedience against the British. But at that time, Gandhi is not interested in that. But since the British establishment was paranoid about Gandhi, they deputed a series of intelligence agents to follow him everywhere. And as a historian and a biographer of Gandhi, I'm deeply grateful to Lord Willingdon and his (laughs) retinue of intelligence agents. (laughs) Because it's through that detailed reports on what Gandhi did, what he said, that we can understand uh, the relevance of this extraordinary march in 1933-34, which is so little known so gandhi goes to is is released he starts his march in my not in my home state karnataka then goes down to kerala then tamil nadu then comes east via andhra pradesh and orissa and it, he stops the march in uh, somewhere in in bihar now wherever he goes he gives a talk and he t- talks about the horrors of untouchability and how it needs to be ended. His talk is addressed to upper caste Hindus, whom he's urging to reform themselves, to cleanse themselves of this horrible practice. And to start, he says, one way to redeem ourselves is to, of course, allow everyone into temples. And another way, and perhaps more practical way, is to start schools for the children of untouchable families. So he then, once this appeal is made, he starts collecting money. So he says, "Okay, how many of you are willing to donate to this fund for opening schools for uh, untouchables? And a little money comes, and maybe a few women donate some jewels, and then the trickle of donation stops. So he says, all right, I have some (coughs) autographed photographs of myself. What will you sell for each one of these? So a second round of collections is made. And that too stops. And then Gandhi knows that there are people in that audience who think he's a rather eccentric, antediluvian and unquestionably ugly old man. So he brings out the photographs of a young, charismatic, uh, incredibly handsome Indian nationalist, Jawaharlal Nehru. And he says, I have signed photographs of Jawaharlal Nehru. So what will you pay for these? And more donations come normally from the women. Uh, But that's not where he stops. That's not where he stops. He knows that there are some people in the audience whose real hero is the militant Bengali nationalist Subhas Chandra Bose. So there are photographs of both that are uh, pulled out. Then he knows uh, that there are some people who are Muslims and uh, who venerate the great Muslim scholar and intellectual Mauna Abul Kalam Azad. And from his bag, there's a fifth card that he plays. Now these are all described in uh, the intelligence reports. But the intelligence reports also tell you that um, wherever Gandhi went in this epic march against untouchability, and I use the word epic advisedly because it really is of a scale and a significance of the Salt March, though historians and certainly ordinary Indians have not recognized it to be so. Wherever Gandhi goes in this epic march against untouchability, there are two two groups of protesters against him carrying back black flags. There are orthodox Hindus who say he has no business to be speaking against untouchability. And there are left-wing radicals who say his critique of untouchability is moral, it's not institutional, it's half-hearted, it's not you know activist enough and so on. So that's really uh, uh, Gandhi's life. It's wide ranging, it spans Politics, religion, economics, social reform, and it's utterly controversial. It's uh, this is a part of his life, perhaps less known outside India. How deeply controversial it is. Now, when <coughs> but people who knew Gandhi well understood that he was a figure of uh, much debate in his lifetime. Uh, his closest friend in London was a veget- fellow vegetarian called Josiah Oldfield, who was also trained as a doctor. And in 1934, after studying Gandhi and his ways for more than 45 years, Josiah Oldfield wrote Gandhi is a problem. To rulers and governors, he is a thorn in their side. To logicians, he is a fool. To economists, he is a hopeless ignoramus. To materialists, he is a dreamer. To communists, he is a drag on the wheel. To constitutionalists, he represents rank revolution. And to Oldfield's list, we may add, to Muslim leaders, he is a communal Hindu. To Hindu extremists, he is a notorious appeaser of Muslims. To the untouchables, he is a defender of high caste orthodoxy. Yet to the Brahmin, he is a reformer in too much of a hurry. So that's really the fascinating aspect of Gandhi that he is a site for debate, controversy, endless argument. And in fact, Gandhi himself welcomed debate and argument. And there's a lovely story about this. Uh, this story is in a little-known book <coughs> by the Hindi writer Bhisham Sani, uh, who wrote a biography of his equally distinguished brother, the actor Balraj Sani. As a young man in the 1930s, a young Indian idealist, Balraj Sani goes to meet Gandhi and he stays in Gandhi's ashram in central India, Sevagram, not far from the town of Varda. And he writes a series of letters to his brother about what life in the ashram is like. And some of the things he clearly doesn't like. For example, uh, he's not allowed to smoke cigarettes. So he has to climb the wall at night and smoke outside and then come back in. But there's a fascinating anecdote he tells that gives you an insight into the essentially uh, argumentative, argumentative nature of Gandhi's creed and personality he says every morning Gandhiji goes for a walk and in that walk anyone can accompany him and anyone can debate with him so people come from all over India so shall we say Gandhi is going on this walk through the countryside and uh, Brahmin comes and attacks him for uh, seeking to end untouchability uh, a little later uh, you know a young engineer shall we say trained in a you uh, know, uh, university, wonders why he's opposed to, why he's promoting the spinning wheel, which is a medieval and out-of-date technology. Uh, so Bisham, Bisham Sani, Balrath Sani writes to his brother, he says, there are all these debates. And Gandhi is quite happy. It doesn't matter whether the interlocutor is young, old, Hindu, Muslim, high caste, low caste, boy, girl, it's fine. But the problem arises when one, when one person is monopolizing too much of Gandhi's time because after all, the walk is open season. It's, it's, you know, it's three hours of debate and then, then Gandhi has to go back and run the affairs of the Congress and plan the next campaign against the British, write his editorials and so on. So clearly, everyone can have his say, but no one person can monopolize Mohandas K Gandhi. So writes uh, Bharat Sani, he says, well, when a particular questioner is too insistent and is really going on and on and on, There's a nod of the head from Gandhi, and at that nod, from the back of the group, and this is a stereotype which the Indians will recognize because it's a North Indian writing, a Punjabi writing. He says, at a nod from Gandhi, a very tall, very dark, and very smelly South Indian comes to the front. (laughs) And presses his face so close to the interlocutor that he withdraws in horror, at which point the next questioner is allowed. is allowed his say. so uh, in calling my talk arguments with Gandhi I'm only doing justice to the man himself Gandhi's arguments the arguments with Gandhi were public they were private and they were posthumous in the year 1983 the British director Richard Attenborough made a film about Gandhi now how many people in this room have seen that film on Gandhi well, that's about 90%. <coughs> uh, now, so I need to say no more on that film, except to tell you what perhaps large numbers of you don't know. That after Attenborough made his spectacularly successful film on Gandhi, that won nine Oscars <coughs> and was uh, shown all over the world and is still st- sold in DVDs and taught in classrooms and so on. The Pakistani government commissioned a film on Jinnah in which Christopher Lee played Jinnah. How many people in this room have seen that film on Jinnah? Well, that's about four people, all right. And now, what you don't know is out of the anger at this deification of Gandhi by Richard Attenborough, the admirers of the great Dalit intellectual lawyer B.R. Ambedkar got a well-known Indian director to make a film on Ambedkar. How many of you have seen that film on Ambedkar? That's one, all right. (laughs) Now, uh, well, it doesn't end there. Then two films were commissioned on the brilliant, fiery, armed revolutionary, Bhagat Singh, who was executed for fomenting violent violent revolution. How many have seen the, uh, well, that's not bad. That's a little more than Jinnah, even. Huh? Alright, uh, then uh, the Bengalis, not to be outdone, were outraged by the fact that there was no place in Gandhi's film for their great icon, Subhash Chandra Bose. So they commissioned the celebrated Indian director, Sham Berigal, to make a film on Gandhi. Or on Subhash Bose. How many here have seen the film on Bose? Well, there's some loyal Bengalis, I can see. <laughs> uh, that's about 10%. Now, there were others too. There were films made on Savarkar and Gutsu. What's striking about Gandhi? This is a posthumous debate with Gandhi. A British director makes a not very good, but a very watchable film about Gandhi. Uh, you know, historically sort of rather sanitized and, and all of that. But he makes a film on Gandhi, and it does spectacularly well. And the those who are up uh, the. Uh, the uh, the icon, uh, the admirers and fans of those who had opposed Gandhi in his lifetime are now moved and motivated to make alternate and rival films. It's an extraordinary tribute to Gandhi. It's not a tribute to Attenborough so much as, as a tribute to Gandhi. Okay, now, so there's I've spoken of these films made on considerable figures. And Ambedkar is one of my heroes. And, you know, and the course I'm teaching at LSE Ideas has a session on Ambedkar. Uh, I admire Bhagat Singh. Uh, I have some admiration for both and some even for Muhammad Ali Jidak. But all these great South Asian figures were South Asian figures, they were not universal figures. What is unique about Gandhi is that he was a world historic figure. If you consider again his four careers, each of these careers was specific to India but of universal applicability. As a freedom fighter, the techniques he innovated, non-violent resistance, are being applied as we speak across the Arab world. As a social reformer, I've spoken about the impact uh, the temple entry movement had on the freedom rights in the south of the United States. As a religious pluralist, I think his ideas have a compelling relevance as an early environmentalist. So the reach of Gandhi (coughs) is phenomenal. You know, it extends into all aspects of our life, into different continents, different countries. And one could make the case (coughs) that Gandhi was the greatest thinker since the Buddha. Uh, And I'm making this case uh, not out of any jingoistic pride because I rather fear that just as we Indians gave birth to the Buddha and kicked him out, we Indians gave birth to Gandhi and we are in the process of kicking him out too. Uh, uh, But even if we kick him out, there will be other people to receive him. And I'm going to end with a story uh, which I can assure you, unlike some of the stories that I may or may not have told today, is completely true because it comes from my personal experience. Because it comes from my personal experience. And the story goes as follows. In 1997, I was invited by the University of California at Berkeley to teach for a semester <clears throat> and I was attracted by the invitation because Berkeley is my fourth favorite city in the world <laughs> uh, and the University of California is a great university. Uh, uh, so I agreed and then we had an exchange, the, those people who invited me and I had an exchange about what I could teach. Uh, this is pre-email days, and uh, I said, I, I was just getting in seriously interested in Gandhi then. So I said, I had worked on the environment as uh, Professor Vestad informed you. I'd written several books on it. I had a passion for cricket, but you can't really teach a bunch of Californians much about cricket. <laughs> uh, uh, so, and I was getting interested in Gandhi, and there were these debates about going on about in India about Gandhi's attitude to Hindus and Muslims and and all that. So I wrote to the university saying, I'd like to teach a course. Called Arguments with Gandhi. And a letter came back saying, No, 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 no. Uh, you know, we've called you here because you've written these books on the environment. And please teach a course on the environment. And fortunately, the Americans are, are quite democratic. You know, unlike Indian universities, which compel you to teach the courses they want you to teach, uh, the Americans at least, you know, allow you to have your say. So I wrote back and I said, No, I want to teach on Gandhi. And another letter came back saying, Look, you know, California, the state of tree huggers, solar energy entrepreneurs. You're known for your work on the environment. And they didn't add that your contribution to Gandhian studies is exactly nil, which is what it was in 1997. Uh, but I stuck to my guns and I said, I will teach on Gandhi. <laughs> but this exchange had left me nervous because, or as to what would happen when I took my first class, how many students would turn up. And this nervousness stayed with me all through the long flight, and I'm going to show you it's a really long flight from Bangalore to San Francisco. Uh, I arrived in Berkeley on a Saturday. My first class was to meet, I think, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. On Sunday, I took a walk down Berkeley's celebrated Telegraph Avenue. And I took a walk up and down, and somebody handed me a newspaper for free. And as anyone who has ever taken a commuter train in London or Mumbai knows, take every piece of paper that is given to you free. <laughs> so I took it and I returned to my room and started reading it. It was some free newspaper called the Oakland Times or the Bay Area Times and so on. I said, started flipping through this, flipping through the paper to acquaint myself with this new town I had come to become a temporary resident of. And my eyes lighted upon an adver- advertisement. An ad- ad- advertisement for a local photo studio. Remember, these are pre-digital days, 1997. And the ad read, <coughs> "Nobody knows more about n- nobody else. No- sorry. I Nobody knows more than us about fast except Gandhi. <laughs> we give you prints in ten minutes." <laughs> now, I was overwhelmed, <laughs> and and if you don't believe me, I will. I can get you that clipping, I still have it, I can get it scanned and sent to you. Uh, Now, the extraordinary thing was this. A copywriter in Berkeley, California knew enough about Gandhi to pun on the word fast and to say, nobody knows more about, uh, uh, nobody knows more than us about fast except Gandhi, we give you prunt. I was charmed, enchanted and relieved. I went to my class on On the Tuesday and the Wednesday, and although I had been told uh, by my host that the only people who would turn up would be ABCDs, American-born confused Desis, (laughs) and one person even added, the only people who will come to hear you are ABCDEFGs, American-born confused Desis emigrated from Gandhi's home state of Gujarat. (laughs) Uh, And that's really, uh, but that ad reassured me. And I went to my class, and it was an extraordinary group of people. Uh, there was a young Burmese girl who had actually been involved in the freedom movement, the democracy movement, and admirer of Hong Sang Suu Kyi. There were several Caucasians. There was a young Jewish girl who wanted to know about Gandhi vis-a-vis the great theologian uh, Martin Buber. There was an African-American who had studied Martin Luther King and studied Malcolm X and wanted to know how Gandhi would help him resolve this dilemma. It was a fascinating class. And when I took the equally long flight back to uh, Bangalore from Berkeley, I reflected on the success of my course, and I concluded that it had nothing to do with the instructor and all to do with the subject. And I'll give you a counterfactual. Shall we say a distinguished American historian, far more distinguished than me, was to come to my home university the university of delhi and offer a course called arguments with fdr (laughs) how many takers would there be thank you very much
0: What a wonderful lecture. We all enjoyed it. We all learned a lot from it. And in typical LSE style, I'm going to start with a rather contrary question um, with regard to Gandhi's legacy, I mean, what you what touched upon right at the end of of this fascinating presentation. Now, I've always been wondering about this, mostly when I happen to be in, in India or in South Asia how much of a legacy Gandhi actually left to his own country and, and to the region because what you see in the decades after his assassination is an in India that developed, it seems to me in very different directions from what Gandhi would have wanted to see and certainly what he expected to see as well, which I think is equally important in terms of thinking about him as an analyst, as someone who understood his own society, technologically obsessed India that fights wars with its neighbors, Um, a country in which class divisions are rampant. So how much of a legacy do you actually leave to India as a state? Let's talk about India rather than the the region. Was he, as some other historical figures that are closer to the English heart, perhaps, a man of the moment? a man who fitted the time in which he operated more than someone who predicted or even envisaged or could envisage the kind of state that independent India became?
1: Well, that's a fascinating and important question. Um, there's a rather gloomy friend of mine who's a well-known uh, Indian anthropologist called Shiv And he claims that if Gandhi was to come back today, and he, if he was to be asked the question that he was asked in Southampton in 1931, uh, if he was to be asked, if he to come back to India, mm. and a journalist was to ask him, what do you think of Indian civilization? Gandhi would answer, now I think that too would be a good idea. <laughs> but I think that's excessively pessimistic. <laughs> I think Gandhi would give India a 50% report. Uh, he would certainly deplore uh, the greed and the exhibitionism of, of the new rich, not least uh, uh, the couple in Mumbai with two kids, like I have two kids, which has just built a 27-story, 400,000 house for their personal use, with six floors of car parking and four floors of personal movies and so on. Now, clearly he would have been opposed to that. Uh, He would have uh, deplored the fact that India is, uh, in a sense, like, um, has ambitions to be the regional hegemon, to be the United States of South Asia, so that the president of Nepal, echoing Uh, 19th century Mexican president could say, poor Nepal, so far from Vishnu, so close to the Republic of India, but uh, uh, having said all that, I think there's some things about uh, Gandhi's legacy that are alive. I think pluralism, I think Gandhi's, I wasn't able to talk about it today, but I think if there is one success that India can boast about, Indian democracy, uh, it is linguistic pluralism, mm. and which is embodied in our rupee note, which has, you know, 17 scripts, 17 languages. I mean, we anticipate the European Union by a long time, and we have different scripts too. And if you look around us, and the way in which Pakistan was divided on the question yeah. of language and so on, uh, and even religious pluralism, I think uh, it's true that there are periodic uh, episodes of Hindu-Muslim violence, mm. but they've never really gone out of, out of hand. And I think this is something to do with Gandhi's legacy. Mm. I think caste... Um, it's, it's to do with Gandhi and Ambedkar. I think mm. that, that dialectic set in motion a process of reform, which meant you know the old orthodoxies uh, could yeah. never be reestablished. There was a churning which has still leading to violence and conflict. But revolutions have that kind of thing. So I think uh, I would, he would give it a 50% report card, maybe a 40% report card. But still, you're, I think you are right. I think uh, uh, the great uh, 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 sort of uh, thinker Ivan Illich once said. Uh, he said, you Indians got Gandhi too cheap, you didn't have to earn him. <laughs> and maybe it's other countries, you know, maybe it's Eastern Europe it's, and so on will take him apart. But uh, clearly his legacy, but I'll just say one last thing about his legacy. Uh, he has inspired some admirable social workers in India today. There's a woman in his home state of Gujarat called Ila Bhatt, who deserves to be much better known all over the world. and uh, uh, who. Uh, has you know who uh, uh, worked in a Gandhian trade union movement, which was male and hierarchical, yes. she started a self-employed women's group. And if you, uh, if you, I have you know, gone and studied these people mm-hmm. and the kind of dignity and self-respect that these working women have from totally disadvantaged backgrounds. There's an extra, another extraordinary Gandhian who lives in the upper Himalaya called Chandi Prasad Bhattu. So they are these social workers, but it's not enough. I mean, if you look at, uh, if, if you would say that, if you were to look at uh, the Indian political class, mm-hmm. You know, uh, the distance between Abraham Lincoln and George W. Bush is minuscule compared to the distance between Mahatma Gandhi and uh, leading Indian politicians. So so I think that will give you a sense. So I agree that there are many ways in which... But I think the the, the spirit of public service does exist, and I think it's not so... hopeless. Still a
0: pretty decent score, I think, in in terms of reports. I'll start upstairs today in terms of questions. Um, Anyone who wants to ask a question? Yes, over there on the left... Do we have the microphones? Yes. Someone else upstairs? Yeah. You could get the microphone to the gentleman in the white shirt. Please. Uh, yeah, show your hand. And yeah. Yeah. pick up you need to pick up the microphone first. Right there. Thank you so much.
2: Uh, yes, um, within the ASEAN consortium. Um, There seems to be um, a debate or a discrepancy on what is being considered to be today to be illegal, legal versus illegal. So um, how will Gandhi support a a better understanding of a probably harmonization of uh, the legal versus illegal issue within the ASEAN consortium? If we were to start learning by making comparisons, what would be the best starting point? Comparisons within the ASEAN consortium per se, or comparisons within the ASEAN EEC or European states? Thank you. Thank you.
3: Um, over here. Yeah, please. Um, hi, my name is Alad. I just want to say thank you, first of all. Um, I'm, I was part of the IndiCor Fellowship. So I spent a year in India uh, observing Gandhians' philosophy and actually trying to create social change. And I also studied at the LSE in economics a few years ago. And all these thoughts floating around in my head of actually trying to live his philosophy. And it, it just it just doesn't feel like enough. Um, and, and the experiences of Naxalism, like we stayed in Sevagram in Maharashtra. Mm. And it's like, there's a quote I read in the paper recently about, you know, when you're starving hungry and people are, are you know, are putting guns in your face. Mm. Violence is seems like the only way out. Um, you know, uh, fasting is not going to do anything. Non non you know, passive resistance not, is not working. Um, I just fear, and it hurts me a lot to see India. You know, going down this path and, and poverty is it's not working. It's not it's not helping. And you know, where's the light in the future? How how is India going to come out strong so that you know the influences on the West are going to make a difference. To the grassroots level, because that's where it hurts me, and it feels I'm, I'm a bit scared that things aren't going to happen. Um, I Thank don't know you. if you have any thoughts on that. Thanks. Thanks.
1: Yeah, I mean, on yeah. uh, your first question actually Gandhi. Uh, one of Gandhi's great weaknesses, uh, and he did have some, believe me, uh, was that he had really no interest in international affairs. You know, Nehru, whom I'll speak about uh, next month, uh, had a kind of pan-Asian vision and had an understanding of relations. But Gandhi, you know, it's hard to see how Gandhi's principles can really. I mean, except to say that. Uh, India should be more tolerant in the neighborhood, particularly with the smaller countries. I mean, I think uh, with uh, Pakistan, there's a very complicated dispute about Kashmir, which is, you know, even more complicated than the Palestine question and arguably even as difficult to resolve. Uh, uh, But with uh, the smaller countries, I mean, I think a Gandhian principle would be towards Nepal, towards Bangladesh, I think, you know, uh, the stronger person must, and the stronger and the bigger person would be, must be more generous. Your question actually, does a distortion of a Gandhi court that's sometimes used by the Hindu right too. If you continue around, down the court, he completely disavows violence. You know, he says, okay, I understand a hungry man's need, but then he talks about how non-violence is the only way to find injustice. So the question is, is one principle that Gandhi always avowed and upheld. It was a question of non-violence. I mean, he, and he would never would count it, have countenance using a gun. I mean, that quote is cut off halfway, often by left-wing activists and right-wing activists. The right-wing activists who justify violence against Muslims and the left-wing uh, activists who justify violence against anything and everybody. Now, uh, <laughs> And that's the part. See, I, the Naxalites are a very complex issue, and I've studied them, uh, and I've actually written extensively on them. They are a product. You're absolutely right. They are a product of deep inequalities in Indian economic development, uh, inequalities that are regional and also ethnic. You know, Indian. Uh, this is I don't want to go into great, great detail, uh, but you know, it's partly to do with the fact that there are some aspects of globalization in India which are beneficial, where, for example, we've leveraged our English language skills in the software boom. The sub-aspects which are not so beneficial, which is the loot of minerals from central and eastern India, where indigenous people live, and who uh, have been delivered into the waiting hands of the Naxalites, mm-hmm. But the Naxalites of the Maoists, of the armed revolutionaries, are not uh, contrary to what one writer claims, Gandhians with a gun, they are brutal and they are savage. And I, I since I have travelled with them and worked with them, I can tell you that uh, you know, they are fighting a hopeless war, they are escalating the violence, a Gandhian method would be what to do, uh, what, uh, maybe not a Gandhian method, but they should take inspiration from uh, someone like Nelson Mandela, who knew when to give up fighting and when to enter the democratic process. <coughs> mm. Thanks. Down here.
0: Yes, right at the end over there first. I'll take one voice right in the middle. Yes. Uh,
3: fast unto death has been criticized as a method for uh, modern India. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you had views on that. And a slightly more trivial question, uh, what do you think of the second, uh, the, the other m- uh, recent movie on Gandhi, Munna Bhai?
0: <laughs> 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 okay, we'll, we'll get one in the middle over there. Nice, I can, like it. If we can get a microphone to this gentleman. And we also take the lady right next to him in the same, in the same go, if you
1: don't mind, Ram.
2: Yeah.
0: Hi, Your presence you. of mind is so, is, is so great that that wouldn't be a problem at all. Please,
1: sir. Hi, thank you. Uh, first thing is I am keen to know about Gandhi's original views on environment. And second thing is regarding, you said uh, Ambedkar is one of, the, one of your heroes. Gandhi and Ambedkar did meet after Gandhi had one of the faster death over the separate electorate. How much of this particular meeting changed Gandhi's thinking towards untouchability? Because some of the Dalit writers say he took up the cause mm. basically because he feared Ambedkar is taking mm. a kind of a devi- yeah. separate okay. constituency that may be far more divisive. Yeah. Thank you. Good.
2: Hi. Uh, I would like to know, how much of a problem do you think Gandhi would have been to the development of Nehru's idea for India as a modern state had he not died when he did?
1: Yeah, so very good questions. No, I think it's a very oh. good question. I think uh, 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 I'll link it, uh, you know, I'll link it, uh, I'll, come t- uh, I'll come to your question of Gandhi. I'll link it to the question of the environment. You see, uh, uh, there's an interesting puzzle that although Gandhi and Nehru had different, Uh, orientations, intellectual, towards technology, economic development. It was Gandhi who chose Nehru as a successor. Because I think this brings me back to the question of pluralism, Mm -hmm. because Gandhi recognized that the unification of India and the creation of a democratic and plural India, Nehru represented that ideal much better than any other contemporary, regardless of their differing views on technology. I think Gandhi would have acted as a moderating influence, Uh, talking about Gandhi being a person of his time. As an environmentalist, he was way ahead of his time. I mean, there's an extraordinary quote of his, which I discovered, uh, uh, where in 1928, he says, God forbid that India industrialize after the manner of the West. The imperialism of a single tiny island kingdom has kept the world in chains. If India, with a population of 300 million, which is what he had in it had in 1928, if India with a population of 300 million took to similar economic exploitation, it would strip the world bare like locusts and add China to that. So it's prophetic. You know, the young man upstairs asked, what kind of life can I lead? Now, the alternatives are not gung-ho industrialization and uh, uh, the simple life of Gandhi. But Gandhi was a precocious environmentalist, and I think he uh, acted as a moderating influence. Even Nehru recognized this in the last years of his life. For example, Nehru changed his views on large dams. And so that small dams with community participation may have actually a larger impact. So I think uh, it's not two polar opposites, op- opposites when you come to environment and development. And Nehru, despite the d- uh, differing views on technology, was a democrat and a pluralist, which is why Gandhi chose him, as he said. Now, um, you know the uh, question about caste and caste reform. Never believe ideologues, whether Marxist or Dalit or Hindutva or Muslim or anything. Don't believe them, all okay? right? I'm a scholar, okay? And I can tell you that the, the relationship between Gandhi and Ambedkar is incredibly complex and interwoven. Both influenced each other. Gandhi had started attacking the caste system from 1905, well before when Ambedkar was an obscure schoolboy somewhere. So, however, Ambedkar did influence him towards taking a more radical stance. So That's Ambedkar's contribution. Ambedkar made Gandhi move towards saying the uh, intermarriage is the major dissolver of the caste system. You know, Gandhi Gandhi didn't advocate intermarriage till he came across Ambedkar. So it did make him more radical. But Gandhi also had an influence on Ambedkar. Ambedkar had a very economistic approach to it. He thought caste will go, If you have economic development, urbanisation in the city, no one knows. Through interactions with Gandhi, Ambedkar developed a deeper moral understanding of uh, how to create caste. There's a wonderful essay by a very great and tragically deceased contemporary of mine, uh, the literary scholar D.R. Nagaraj, whose book, The Flaming Feet, I would recommend because it's the finest study of uh, Gandhi and Ambedkar written. It was written 25 years ago. He died shortly. He was a contemporary of mine and I miss him every day as it happens. But, uh, you know, so it's very, and when India became, you know, the Gandhi-Ambedkar relationship is so fascinating. It's much more fascinating than Gandhi. The Gandhi-Nehru relationship is that of a loving father and a devoted but sometimes errant son. All right. But the relationship with Gandhi and Ambedkar is friend, rivals, antagonists, uh, adversaries, but yet mutual respect. When India becomes independent uh, in July, it is Gandhi who tells Nehru. Well, well before that, Gandhi, when well, Ambedkar, and Ambedkar uses the most vitu- vituperative language about Gandhi, and when Gandhi's acolytes are angry, Gandhi says, it is a wonder that Ambedkar does not break our heads, uh, given what horrors caste Hindus have done to him. And it is that Gandhi is insistent that Ambedkar is made a member of the first cabinet and drafts the Indian Constitution. And it's an extraordinary relationship in which both, so don't listen to ideologues on either side, please, on that, because it's heavily distorted. And in fact, Gandhi and Ambedkar are both needed by India today. Uh, one last point about fast unto death. You know, lots of random people around today say, Gandhiji did this and so I'll do that. Well, the only fast unto death that Gandhi uh, did were on social questions. He never fasted against the British uh, on... You know, it was for H- Hindu-Muslim harmony. So I, 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 I urge... Uh, uh, the people who go on fast unto death to please go to Gujarat and sit outside, uh, uh, you know, Juhapura in Ahmedabad where the Muslims are not pro- properly rehabilitated and fast unto death. there. Then I would say Rehagan.
0: I must say I found the, the parts on, uh, on Abed Khan that you had in Makers of Modern India really, really fascinating. I mean, very, very enlightening. Okay, I'll take one in the front row here. No, I? Just wait just wait for the microphone, Please. You show your hands. Okay, oh, we'll take these two. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to ask you mentioned that uh, Gandhi was very interested in religious pluralism and he had a lot of exploration there. For a person such as myself who has a shallow understanding of Gandhi, um, you only know about Ahimsa and Satyagraha, and he re- references Hindu um, basis to his activism in the four particular professional pursuits you uh, described. Are there any references to anything that he learned from his religious religious pluralism? And if there are not, or
3: not well known to people with shallow understanding, is that a reason for, for example, Muslims being alienated? Because it it was a Hindu activism that occurred.
0: Thanks. And the lady right next to you. Um,
3: In your studies of Gandhi and your studies of Indian cricket, do you think um, the spirit of Gandhi influences Indian cricket? (laughs)
0: Through the eyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I knew we would get a question of that sort and I guess, Ram, you, you guessed it as well. Yes, yeah. please. Um,
1: uh, I, you, you said about the relationship between Gandhi and uh, Ambedkar and also to some extent between uh, Gandhi and Nehru. I mean, how do you see, we all have historical anecdotes about that, but how do you see the relation between Bose and Gandhi? Mm. Yeah. Thanks. Ram. Yeah. Uh, well, all the important questions. Cricket, if you'll excuse me, I'm giving a separate lecture on cricket where Gandhi will come in, so please come for that (laughs) as part of this series. (laughs) You know, um, the religious pluralism part, in his lifetime, you're absolutely right that the Hindu idiom uh, of some of Gandhi's utterances and uh, words did alienate a section of Muslim opinion. But uh, Gandhi drew a great deal from Christianity. Uh, You know, a great deal. He was, uh, and he often said the Sermon on the Mount influenced him as much as the Bhagavad Gita. I talked about his relationship with Andrews. And despite uh, the fact that he had not studied the Quran as closely, his political program, indeed his life itself, was staked on harmony between Hindus and Muslims. You know, so I think that's, and uh, it's an extraordinary thing that if you travel in Pakistan today, as I have, uh, people respect Gandhi. They may say nasty things about Nehru you know, and about some other Indians, and uh, they may say things about Kashmir, and sometimes legitimate things about Kashmir, but I think they recognize that uh, the manner of his death uh, spoke most of all as to what he thought about that, that question. Now, there's uh, a great, you know, you know, you know first-class scholarship on, on Gandhi. I, I mentioned, are not, these are not books easy to get, uh, uh, but there's, a, there's one good and one outstanding book on Gandhi's religious uh, pluralism, and neither was written by an Indian, which is actually a testimony to, Uh, The fact that maybe all Indian intellectuals are atheists and Marxists and so on. (laughs) Or at least the better ones. Uh, One was written by a woman called Margaret Chatterjee, who is a philosopher, English married to uh, an Indian. It's called Gandhi's religious philosophy. The other, which is even better, was written by a deceased uh, Australian lapsed Catholic called J.T.F. Jordan. Now, they're not easy to get. They're published by university presses, which, you know, on Amazon it may be 250 pounds. Uh, But they're both first class books. And I think this will give you a sense of how his uh, religious pluralism speaks to us uh, even today. Uh, You know, uh, the question of Bose and Gandhi. Uh, Clearly, uh, Gandhi was less than democratic in the way in which he unseated Bose uh, in 1939 from presidency of the Congress. Uh, And that uh, episode does not uh, bring much credit to Gandhi. But as a historian, more than as as a citizen, as a Democrat, I'd say two things about Bose. Bose was an incredibly charismatic, uh, articulate, Uh, Figure, Uh, uh, and I think if he had come back to India uh, alive in 1947, he would have been a great rival to Nehru. You know, they would have formed the Congress Party would not have been big enough for both of them. He would have had to leave, and there would have been an incredibly interesting show. Probably not very good for India, because Bose was uh, uh, he was non-communal, he was committed, but he was an authoritarian. You know, he had a liking for khaki shorts. Uh, uh, which uh, well predated uh, the time he spent in Berlin and the months he spent waiting for an audience with Hitler. You know, well, he had a liking for khaki shorts mm-hmm. or, uh, well before that. So he was a complex, interesting man, but Gandhi was certainly wrong in, in the methods he used to unseat him in Now uh,
0: Tomorrow in Ideas, we will have the launch of Tanya Homer's new book on the international affairs of the Allende regime in Chile. So for those of you who have an interest in Latin American history or even in the broader aspects of Cold War history, you are most welcome to that one at 6.30. We are certainly looking forward to the next lecture in this series by Ram Guha. His um, lecture, that is absolutely true, uh, to the UN General Assembly a few weeks ago, also called, or similar title, Why India Matters, um, given on the um, observance of, of Gandhi's birthday, is available outside in case you want to pick it up. It has some of the same points that he's made today, but as we all heard in terms of his oral delivery, Ram strays rather far, I think, from any given text. And he has enlightened us tremendously by doing so tonight. Ram, we are very grateful to have you here as Philippe Oman here for this year. It's been a wonderful lecture. We enjoyed it very much, and we want to thank you. For